gents, this is the moment you've waited for. You've been searching in the dark, your sweat soaking through the floor. And buried in your bones, there's an ache that you can't ignore. Taking your breath, stealing your mind, and all that was real is left behind. Don't fight it, it's coming for you, running at you. It's only this moment, don't care what can gather. Y'all feel a dream, can't you see you getting closer? Just surrender, cause you feel the feeling taking over. It's fire, it's freedom, it's flooding open. It's a picture in the pulpit and your blind devotion. There's something breaking at the brick of every wall, it's holding on. Everybody, and welcome to That's Life. Yeah, we had a new start today to the show because, uh, yeah, welcome to the greatest show. No, I really wouldn't say that on the Nachum Siegel Network. That would be JM in the AM. But it is Purim right around the corner. And so this is my tribute to that. And also, frankly, I'm a little bit obsessed with the Greatest Showman soundtrack. Let's be honest. And that is the title track. That's the first track. That is the greatest show. So Yoni and I were talking about that and decided to go with it. Hi, everybody, and welcome to That's Life, where we are in pre-Purim swing at the Nachum Siegel Network and in true Vanaha Fochus fashion. It was 72 degrees here yesterday in New York, and it was 37 degrees in Houston. That is correct. Shout out, by the way, to Rabbi Ariel Rakovsky of Houston for that Facebook post. Good morning, folks. Thanks for listening. I'm Miriam L. Wallach, blogger, writer, general manager here at the Nahum Siegel Network. You can find me here right after Allison. And right before Nahum's live lunch, who do I see behind the board? Do my eyes deceive me? It is the pride of Houston himself. Yoni Pollock, good morning, sir. Yesterday was one of those rare days where I might have been better off in New York than Houston. Yeah, you were super happy yesterday. Super happy <laughs> yesterday. And I was grumpy. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be honest. It's those I'm, change of seasons coming up that, that I don't enjoy. That mood shift in the studio. Right, exactly. Where, where I get happier. Where you get super happy and you love getting into hot cars, which makes absolutely no sense to me. Love it. I can't even. <laughs> Just, I can't even. And yesterday, I come out of the studio getting ready to head to my car to go home, and it's still warm, and it's almost six o'clock at night. And Nachum and I left at the same time, and I looked at Nachum, I'm like, ugh. I just need some snow. And he's like, don't say things like that. I just He gets it. Yeah, he does. The two of you. He wants to make Aliyah to uh, a lot. <laughs> you want to live on the sun. I, I just completely, I completely don't get it. I am a New Yorker, born and bred. Uh, shout out, by the way, to USA Women's Hockey. Right. Big gold last night. Um, Yesterday morning. I mean, Yeah, whatever. Morning, exactly. That's true. That's true. I, um, I couldn't understand why my house was still awake at uh, just around a quarter to three in the morning until my husband said to me, well, why don't you ask our daughter? Because the two of them, she is a hockey fanatic, as we know. I think she's just a patriot. She's, she's uh, so patriotic. Sure. Yeah, there's that. She's a patriot. And also, she's the captain of her hockey team. So there's that. And she loved watching it. She loves watching hockey in general. But certainly, there was a tremendous amount of energy last night going into you know overtime and the whole thing. And boom, just big win. Sorry for the Canadians. Um, and I say that with a Canadian on, on hold right now who's going to be joining me on the air pretty soon. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, sh- sorry for the Canadians. Big loss. Um, it, it hurts to lose when you're Canadian when it comes to hockey. Yeah, that's your sport. That's yeah. the one you got to win. Right. You guys, they're born with skates in their hands, no? 
Yeah, also to lose it to America. You right, lose that's it to, the like, worst. Russia or whoever. Like, exactly. Right, they're also good, but America? Right. You lose to Norway? All right. Right, Skating exactly. team? Right. You right. lose to a bunch of Americans from Boston. It's got to be rough. <laughs> I'm really not making light of it, but uh, congratulations. Yeah, big, big night. Last night slash this morning, and big night tonight for the YU Max. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know more about this than I do. Um, because what I hear is just what comes out of, you know, Siegel territory. Yeah, Nahum's the biggest fan. Nahum is a crazy fan. What did he say yesterday in the studio? Something about his life revolves around the YU Max? Yeah, but I'm, I'm trying to think what the whole story was. Yeah. I know, but it's it's only partially a joke. Right. Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, besides the fact that it's good, clean family fun, there's a tremendous amount of pride going on here. When was the last time they made it to the quarterfinals? Uh, I think a few years ago, but other than like, you know, before that, I don't think it was for right. A while, there's been a drought, yeah. right? There was certainly a drought before then, um, yeah. and there's a video going around that's right. that's pretty viral at this point about about why you max pride, and yeah. it's very simple. It's very simple. It's the hot tikva. Um, it was a sax player that night, correct? If I'm not mistaken, could be. I think so. And you have the entire team standing there, and you have the f- stacked fans. One on top of the other, everybody's singing the Hatikva, and it's really a beautiful moment. I think what's great about them is not not that they're just crazy talented, and maybe more so than other years, but also they're all great kids. Like each, that's what I heard. I mean, obviously, like, I don't know them kids. personally. I don't know them personally, but there is that. Um, yeah, there is that. I don't want to say rumor because it makes it sound like <laughs> <Yeah>. there's <laughs> like there's part of it that's not necessarily true. Coach Steinmetz joined Nachum this morning on Jam in the AM, which really is, of course, the greatest show. Right. Um, but uh, and there's a tremendous amount of humility like he knows he's he's um i don't i want i don't want to call him i don't want to refer to him as just the chef um but there's a tremendous amount of talent on that court and there's a tremendous amount of heart and you can see it in the way they play and i think that that in particular with um a lot of let's say strife that could be going on on campus or strife that's going on in real life right there's always that that shining light it's i mean this is a terrible analogy but it's like the u.s men's hockey team in 1980 which you completely don't get because i've seen a movie or two about oh, it. god in heaven <laughs> um but yeah there was that moment where you need something that has nothing it's so much bigger mm-hmm. it's so much bigger than just the game itself than just the sport itself there's the message there's the feeling behind it there's that camaraderie there's something clean and almost pure that we can all rally behind and i think that that's exciting yeah and Nahum said something about, uh, you know, the tier that has to move around if it ends up on Shabbos. Do you know? We'll we'll, we'll, uh, we'll get there if we get there, you know. Well, okay, but I don't. Yeah, I mean, yeah. If they go on and win their next two games, then they ha- then they go to like the actual big bracket of all of Division Three in the country, and then there are potentially games on Shabbos, so they have to figure that part out. Right. So everything would have to move in order to accommodate them. Was his point? Presumably. Right. All right. So let's. You know, Let's get there. Yeah, exactly. Let's get Wow, that was cautious optimism on your part, <laughs> Pollock. Uh, Pollock, are, do you have boxes for this? I, I don't, but but if they get far enough, maybe we got Do you like that yeah, I was even go. able There's to say boxes. that? The boxes reference. Great. Thank you. Good Thank stuff. you. Thank you. All right, well, let's go through the day's national holidays, and we'll get to today's guest. Uh, it's National Chili Day. Cool. Yeah, which um, great bringing down back the weather. Chili the food, right? Chili the food. Yes, chili the food. Um, it's also, I don't know, this goes hand in hand, but it's also National Margarita Day. Yeah, I feel like it doesn't go hand in hand. Yeah, any day could be National Margarita Day? Or it's just random for you? Nothing? I don't know. Nothing. All right, you're not, not a margarita, it. yeah. All right. It's also George Washington's uh, birthday, which Correct. is a big deal. It's Introduce a Girl to Engineering Day, which 
is pretty cool if you can, you know, do things with numbers, which is not me. Right. Uh, not me <laughs> at all. And it's also Discover Girl Day, which is the Thursday of National Engineers Week. So that's clearly tied into Introduce a Girl to Engineering Day. Okay. Um, so either way, that's all pretty cool. There's a lot of good vibe here. Good the th- vibes, yeah. Good vibe. And it's also my last show before Purim. That's correct. I will not be on the air next week. I will be angrily uh, assembling Mishloch Manot for everyone in the five towns. At this time, exactly next I'll week. I'll be annoyed this week, this time next week. That is 100% correct. You will be listen- You are listening to That's Life here at the Nachum Siegel Network. My guest this morning is David A. Goldstein. He is the author of Alley Oop to Aliyah, American, African-American Hoopsters in the Holy Land. David is the chief operating officer of U Sports, which for us Americans is the Canadian equivalent of the NCAA. He is also an adjunct professor of sports law at the University of Toronto. He lectures on the topic on the topic at his alma mater, which is the Osgoode Hall Law School, which is of York University. He's a graduate of the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University. And David profiled NBA, player, NBA players for more than a decade in a regular sports feature for the Cincinnati Inquirer. And from 2002 to 2003, he also wrote for Share, a weekly African-Canadian and Caribbean newspaper in Toronto. He joins us this morning. David, good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining me. This entire story of what brings African-American basketball players to Israel and what makes them love the country is something like almost a funny concept. Like, When did you realize that this wasn't accidental or coincidental, that there was really some kind of consistent thread here? Well, the the theme really came to me on a visit to Israel. I, I go almost every year visiting family, and I have my whole life. But I was there more than 10 years ago visiting uh, my grandparents. My grandmother had some friends over at her place, and I mentioned offhandedly something about being from Toronto. And immediately these women just started to rave about Anthony Parker. And Anthony Parker was a basketball player at the time for the Toronto Raptors, but he'd previously spent five years in Tel Aviv. And what struck me was that these women, and these are, you know, 80-something-year-old women, I wouldn't have guessed them uh, to be basketball fanatics by any means, but they weren't talking about him as a player. They called him a mensch and a ziskite and a motek, and they really loved him as a person. Uh, and it, I, was, I was really moved by it, and it, it got me thinking, you know, what, what is the deal with this connection between this African-American basketball player and these uh, you know, 80-something Eastern European Jewish women, and that's what led me to digging. And what I saw was a phenomenon more than 40 years old that's extremely positive and a really strong bond. And 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 so this random sort of random conversation with these women tipped you off to the fact that there might just be more than one player who has been doing this. How many players did you interview for this book? I interviewed more than 40 players uh, who played, uh, spent time in Israel, and in, in researching, I've discovered that in more than 40 years, more than 800 African-American players have spent some time in Israel. Now, some of those have spent a few weeks, and maybe they didn't make the team, or, or things weren't working out on the court, and they left. Some of them go back you know, four or five years in a row. Sometimes they take less money because they love the country, uh, and eventually return to the U.S., and some of them, and what I thought was really interesting, was some of them, you know, become citizens, uh, make Aliyah, and actually stay after they retire. Um, so there are African-American retired basketball players in their 50s and 60s who live in Israel as Israelis. 
That's an incredible statistic. I mean, it's 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 a detail which I can't imagine too many of us know. I mean, the most important um, African American player right now to anyone who's a, a Jewish New Yorker is, of course, Amare. And That's right. and I wonder if Amare, um, you know, he's obviously very well known and very outspoken and very integrated and and really sees himself as a member of the, of of Israeli culture. Do the other players integrate that far as well? Yeah, Murray's a really unique example because he grew up a, a Hebrew Israelite or a black Hebrew and, and has a very fascinating identity where he practices parts of the Jewish culture, parts of Christianity. Um, so his is a, a very unique case. But generally speaking, the players that I spoke to really do you know, integrate into the society um, and, and become ambassadors of the country, whether they stay in Israel or not. You know, the, the whole book started with Anthony Parker. Anthony Parker, when he did make it back into the NBA, chose to wear number 18. Hmm. Uh, so the very first thing he did when he came back to the NBA was essentially put his love of Israel on his chest and on his back and, and invite, you know, questions about that bond and that integration and that connection with the country. And, and he's, you know, an extreme example, but a lot of players feel the same way and are now in the States arguing for Israel uh, in their respective communities. How many of these basketball players are religious men? Uh, I would say very few. Uh, huh. A number of players converted uh, okay. converted to Judaism uh, and are observant to varying degrees. Uh, as far as religious, it's a pretty low number. A number of them, you know, are, are quite religious Christians. Right. No, I didn't mean benefits... I, I didn't mean religious Jews. I, I oh, really, okay. yeah, I apologize. <laughs> that's why I that's why I didn't go the whole right. I, I, just to clarify, I'm really wondering how much of this connection to Israel and this draw to Israel is spiritually based. I mean, we we meet plenty of African Americans who are evangelical Christians who believe in Zion, who believe in the Jews need to return and yeah. the strength of Israel. And so I wonder, I apologize, I should have made that a little bit more specific, <laughs> but when I mean religious, I mean just religious. And that that is very much a part of the draw. So a lot of players went, you know, even the neutral players that, that are religious but not, you know, not particularly uh, spiritual, they love seeing the sight. So everyone went to see the the holiest sites in Judaism, the holiest sites in Christianity. But a lot of the players that I spoke to were very much drawn by that, the fact that there was something unique about being able to walk the roads that Jesus walked, mm. to, to go celebrate Chris, uh, Christmas and Easter at the holiest sites. Uh, you know, one player said, look, there's something really surreal about driving home from work, driving home from practice, and one of the traffic signs says Bethlehem to the left. <laughs> uh, you know, you only get that in one country in the world. So that was very much a draw for a lot of the players. And it also, so it sounds like it not only brought them there, but helped build this relationship, this this love of the land. I, you're looking at some of the pictures that are coming off of social media in the last couple of days of the football players, of the members of the NFL who are currently in Israel, who are leaving, I think, very soon, and seeing them also connect um, you know, both spiritually and and just on a one-on-one basis with Israelis, etc. To me, there is that you know that overarching connection that brings people there, that builds these lasting bonds, and and sort of at least in the case of these African American players that you interviewed, makes them want to stay. Yeah, it's it's really a, a deep and, and unique connection. Again, there's there's only one country that's the founding place of, of Christianity and of Judaism. There is something, you know, anyone who's been will say, will tell you there's a unique feeling to being there. You know, one player that I spoke to, interestingly, you know, went 
signed with the team, went to play in Israel. The next year, signed with the team, went to play in Israel again. The third year was actually a free agent, hadn't signed a contract, but had loved going to the country the last two years so much and, and had so many more things on his list that rather than, as a player normally would, wait to see what the best offer is in whatever country in the world and go play there, he just flew to Israel wow. and, and told his agent, you know, sign me with one of the teams here, but this is where I want to be, and just started touring and seeing the sites he hadn't seen in his first two years there. That's amazing. That's really, that's an incredible story. David Goldstein joins us. He is the author of Aliyup to Aliyah, African-American Hoopsters in the Holy Land. Life in Israel in general is very immediate. I mean, we say politics are immediate. Anything can happen, and you can influence change very quickly. You also because of the nature of the Jewish people, as I'd like to say, feedback that you get (laughs) is also very immediate. So I wonder if there are anecdotes from the players, basically, of, you know, they're walking down the street, they're going to get a cup of coffee, and somebody yells something at them. You know, the the players talked about it at length. One of the benefits of the country is it's so Americanized, and everyone speaks English, so it's, it's very similar. It's a very easy transition from American life. But one of the big differences is exactly what you're saying. Uh, and and they pointed it out mainly as far as driving, uh, any situation that involves standing in a line. Uh, there's a lot of butting, a lot of elbows that maybe they're used to on the court, but they weren't expecting when they line up at the bank. Um, so they had a lot of great stories about that or, or feedback, as you're saying, you know, about what to, you know, a lot of feedback about their play on the court that they maybe weren't expecting in the grocery store. But the players that had been there a few years in a row were the quickest to say, look, that's very much a part of it, right? There's no personal space. Volume is much higher uh, on day-to-day conversations. There's an aggressiveness that you need to get used to. But that's the flip side of the warmth that so many of them loved. That's why you're invited to Friday night dinner every week, why you're a part of the family immediately upon arriving. If you had a flat tire, everyone would pull over to help you. And so the players that had been there a few years were the ones to say, look, you can't criticize one aspect when you benefit so much from the other. These are, these are the two sides of the same coin, and you just got to get used to it. And it clearly doesn't scare them. No, absolutely not. In fact, some of the players, one of the things I loved hearing was some of the players talk about their transition and how you know, they'll come home to the States in the summer and spend a month in the U.S. And when they come back to Israel, they've got a, one player said he's got to flip on the Israeli personality again and make sure they've got to get their elbows ready and, and be ready to you know, take advantage of an open spot because they, they develop that Israeli persona as well. Even some very laid-back Southern guys who said, you know, you've got to change a little bit and become a bit more Israeli uh, to make it here. Oh, wow. That's, that's interesting. But then you bring up something about them returning to their families. Let's, let's be honest, though, for a moment, that obviously media and, and persona that is often um, portrayed about life in Israel is one that is constantly, constantly under threat, constantly under barrage of bombs, constantly in war. And that, I'm sure, depending on the time when a number of these gentlemen decided to go to Israel with some of the feedback that they were getting from their families. So did they have pushback? Oh, tons. Uh, I mean, pushback, personal reservations. Almost every player had a very, very similar kind of arc with their relationship with Israel, which was, uh, no, I don't want to go there, uh, dear agent. Sign me somewhere else. I'm, I'm pretty reluctant. Uh, you know, become convinced, get, get persuaded by others, show up, and then say, you know, I don't see signs of war on every corner. I don't feel unsafe. As a matter of fact, I feel quite secure. And in some cases, I feel more secure than I do in the U.S. Mm. And then oftentimes they go from scared newcomers to, by the end of a season or two, they're the ones 
convincing players who haven't been, you got to try it. You're going to love it. Um, you know, and, and with their families, there were some family members that gave pushback. And one player said, you know, his mom didn't want him to go. She didn't want him to go. Eventually he went, he convinced her to come visit. And when she came to visit, as he said, I needed to knock her on the head to knock her out to get her back on the plane home. She wanted to stay. <laughs> so they, they definitely felt that. And, and the one thing I'd add is, you know, the violence, they always spoke about the fact that they didn't feel it day to day. But one of the things that I think they should get credit for that uh, I don't think is necessarily well known is, you know, it is a reality in Israel, right? It does come up from time to time. There are antifadas and wars and, and spates of attacks. And these players, you know, when you're Israeli, that's part of your life. Uh, these players have a choice. They're right. a phone call away from anywhere in the world at any point. And I spoke to so many players that chose to stay during conflict, during war, and they, to a person, said they felt a kinship with the Israelis, um, they felt a bond, they felt a loyalty, and they admired the way Israelis said, you know, we're going to go about our daily life, you're not going to disturb us, you know, terrorism won't win. And these players took that on and said, we're going to stay, we're going to keep playing, we're going to visit people in hospitals, we're going to go to bomb shelters, and we are also going to show you're not going to disturb our contribution to, to Israeli life. And I was really touched by it because there were a lot of players that said it, a lot of players that did it, and I, I think they deserve a lot of credit for that. No, absolutely. The tremendous amount of resolve that it takes to to say it, you know, you say one thing, you do something else, but to stay, to say it, to stand by it, to act through it. And you're right. When, when you have a passport that can take you anywhere, <coughs> excuse me, and you choose to stay, <coughs> oh, I apologize. And you choose to stay. That is, that is tremendous. Yeah. Yeah, it, it really was. And, and, you know, I think, uh, and beyond that, I mean, that, that's a lot of players, some players, you know, once they uh, got their citizenship, some players actually served in the IDF. Right. Uh, some of the retired players now have kids joining the IDF. So they are, when I say that they're Israeli, I mean, they're Israeli with all of the challenges that that comes with. And, you know, sending your, your sons and daughters off to, to, the, uh, to the army, they go through the exact same thing and they're, they're proud to do it. And did they, was there, were there anecdotes of, rate, of racism, of inherent um, skepticism when it came to, in, in, basically incorporating these players into Israeli society? Did they, did they feel that pushback? You know, I spoke to, to, again, more than 40, and I asked each of them, have you experienced racism? And, and almost to a person, the answer was no. And then I asked, do you know of others who did? And, and, and I knew that it couldn't be a, a total fairy tale, but really the overall feeling was that they didn't experience racism by and large. Um, and in fact, some players said, you know, they felt more comfortable being black in Israel than they do being black in the U.S. Uh, there were exceptions, and I talked about some of them, some isolated comments that were made. Um, you know, one of the challenges that some of the retired players have now is getting coaching jobs, and, mm. and some players attributed that to race. But even those things are, frankly, similar issues in the U.S. Right. By and large, the sentiment was uh, very little racism, if any, um, and, and uh, a, a true acceptance by the people. And I think part of it is, you know, you mentioned some of the negativity that Israel gets in the media. When an African-American player chooses to play in Israel out of any country in the world, despite the news about it, despite the allegations of apartheid and human rights violations and all of that stuff, you know, I, I think that means something to the Israeli people, and I think that's a big part of why they're accepted. I, I hear that. That's a great point. David A. Goldstein, author of Aliyup to Aliyah, 
African-American hoopsters in the Holy Land has joined us this morning. David, I have one more question. Something that fascinated me in the book was the conversation about how playing in Israel extended the careers of many of these players. I wonder if you talk about that for a second. Yeah, a lot of the players talked about the fact that, you know, in some countries in Europe, they really, you know, practices in preseason are three times a day. Practices during the season are two times a day plus games. It's a really grueling grind. Um, and, and players said that in Israel they didn't have that, that there was uh, less time dedicated to practice. Um, for a long time they had a much shorter season. They've now extended that season. But you had a lot of players that are playing into their late 40s, even 50s, you know, a couple of the players that I spoke to are still active now. One is 50, one is 55. Wow. You know, and they talked about the fact that it just wasn't as uh, grueling a practice schedule as grueling a season in Israel, and that allowed them to keep going. And plus, somebody's making you babka at the end of each game, so that's got to... Exactly. Exactly. They're, they're very well fed. Right. They're going to somebody's house for dinner. It's going to make something up at the end of the day. That's Exactly. Exactly. That's a good feeling. David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, the book is available on Amazon? Yes, it is. And thank you very much for the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Aliyup, Aliyup to Aliyah. Again, African-American hoopsters in the Holy Land. A, a phenomenal, phenomenal book. You can discover why Israel has become a popular destination for African-American basketball players. It is not a coincidence. There is actually a draw. David, thanks so much. Have a great day. Thank you so much. You too. You've been listening to That's Life here at the Nachum Siegel Network, a fascinating book. I really highly recommend it. And by the way, not just for the sports fanatics, because I know absolutely nothing about basketball. I say that wholeheartedly, and admittedly, I, I know nothing about basketball. But it is a fascinating, fascinating story. We have a full afternoon of programming for you right after That's Life. It's the live lunch hosted by Nachum Siegel right here on the Nachum Siegel Network. The afternoon continues with a full afternoon of programming, including Throwback Thursday at 1 p.m. and an encore of JM Rewind at 4 p.m. And, of course, the Erev Shabbos show hosted by Mark at 7 p.m. brought to you by our friends at Kedem. Tomorrow morning, join Nahum as he hosts JM the AM from 6 to 9 a.m. Eastern Time. 7.40 in the morning, he'll be joined by Malcolm Holmline live from Jerusalem with the weekly update. And at the conclusion of JM the AM, join Naomi for Table for Two. And then stay tuned as you enjoy the encore presentation of Thursday night's Kedem Erev Shabbos show. That begins at 10 a.m., also hosted by Mark Zamek, brought to you by our friends at Kedem. And then, of course, the Erev Shabbos music mix, also brought to you by our friends at Kedem, continues up until candlelighting here in the New York area. If you hear that song in the background, there you go. It's Lenny Solomon's Making Aliyah Today. That is my tribute to all of those basketball players who have made Aliyah, who have found their homeland in Israel, as a tribute also to our author and this book. Uh, don't miss a minute of any of our programming of Rami host Saturday Night Seagull, Matzei Shabbos, starting at 9 p.m. Matzei host JM Sunday, 7 a.m. Eastern Time Court Report, 7 p.m. on Sunday as well. I wish everyone a Chag Purim Sameach. Enjoy your time next week. That's life, everybody. Bye, guys.